Good evening. Okay, uh, my colleague Gavin and I are representing the Christian organization Creation Ministries International. And as a Bible-believing Christian, I take the Bible to be the Word of God and true in everything it teaches. So, for example, I believe the Bible when it tells me that God created everything in six days, just, 24 hour, uh, just uh, thousands of years ago. I also believe what the Bible teaches about God creating people specially and supernaturally, rather than this idea that we evolved from ape-like creatures. And at Creation Ministries International, we seek to uphold the Bible from the very first verse. Okay? We are primarily an information ministry, providing people in the church with tools and information with which they can defend the Christian faith. We want to encourage Christians to hold fast to the Bible as the Word of God. And also, we want to help equip the church to reach out to a fallen and lost world. And we're here today to make it clear that when it comes to science, Bible-believing Christians are not in difficulties, and that the Bible is a book that can be trusted. Now, if you'd like to know more about our ministry and would like to receive our free InfoBytes email, and then there, then there are some clipboards at the back uh, so that you could sign up for this if you'd like to. Uh, you do actually, though, have to be uh, 16 years or um, older. Um, InfoBytes will able, enable you to read our responses to the latest media stories about science and the Bible and creation and evolution. This is another, uh, this is one of the uh, InfoBytes articles. Uh, about how embracing evolutionary beliefs sometimes turns pastors into atheists. And I can assure you it does happen. There are pastors, and they come to believe in evolution, and they stop believing in the Bible. This one responds to a claim by National Geographic magazine that creationists are at war with science. And if you believe in creation, then you can't believe in science. Well, that's not true at all. This is uh, um, uh, an article which features an episode from our creation TV show called Creation Magazine Live. You can watch this free on the web. Infobytes will also keep you in touch with our latest news, bookstore offers, and so on. So if you're 16 or over and you'd like to receive our free Infobytes email, uh, please do pop your details down on the form at the back. We also have a website, and the web address is very easy to remember, creation.com. And there's a search engine there which enables people to enter keywords representing any question that they might have about science and the Bible and creation and evolution. There are around 11,000 articles now on the website dealing with all sorts of questions about these issues. Okay, well, different races or one human family. Now, this talk is about the history of mankind as taught in the Bible and why this is so important. You know, if the Bible can't be trusted in what it has to say about our origins, where we all came from, then why should anyone think that it can be trusted in anything else it has to say? 
And if the Bible's not right in what it teaches about human history, why should anybody think that it's right in what it teaches about God or about morality or about sin and salvation? And you know, if Darwin's theory of evolution is true, then let's face it, the Bible is wrong about some pretty fundamental issues. For example, if evolution is true, then death is not the result of sin, as the Bible teaches, because according to the theory of evolution, violence and disease and suffering and death were all in the world long before anyone was around to sin. And if evolution is true, surely even the very character of God comes into question. According to the Bible, the world that God originally created was perfect. One that reflected the perfectly good nature of its creator. And the Bible makes clear that in that world, in the world that God originally made, there would have been no suffering or death. People would not have died, and animals would not have eaten each other. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 30, God said, And all, to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. In the world that God originally created, that perfect world, animals would not have eaten each other. They ate plants. God gave them every green plant for food. But if evolution is true, then suffering and death were part of life from the beginning. See, according to Darwin's theory, human life came into being through suffering, through natural selection, and the death of the less fit. And you know, despite the Bible's clear statement that God made the first people, specially and supernaturally, some teach that God used evolution to create people. They say that God created humanity through a process of millions of years of natural selection, through millions of years of disease and predation, through nature red in tooth and claw, and through survival of only the fittest. But why should a loving and all-powerful God create through such a violent and wasteful process? And what sort of a God would create in such a way? Not the God of the Bible, not the God I worship. You see, the God of theistic evolutionists, that's people who teach that God created through evolution, is surely not uh, the God that we see in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, the God of the Bible created a perfect world, and not by a process of evolution, but supernaturally. And according to the Bible, it is only the violent and desperately unhappy place that it is today because of our sin, because we turned away from God and embraced evil. That's the Bible's explanation 
for why the world is as it is today. Because God didn't create it like that in the beginning. But of course, the Bible also gives us the good news, doesn't it? That God didn't want us to remain in this state. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die on the cross. And after Jesus had died to pay the penalty for sin, God raised him from the dead so that all who would receive his salvation uh, would be empowered to live a new life and one that's pleasing to God. And Jesus said that one day he would return, he would return to the earth, and that he would restore it to its original perfect form. And he's promised for all who will receive his salvation that there would then be no more suffering and no more death. Which is why it's the good news. And what we believe about our origins, where we all came from, will not only affect how we view God, but also how we view one another. And the way we think about people will be greatly influenced by what glasses we wear. Whether we see the world through secular, evolutionary glasses or through biblical glasses. Belief in evolution will lead to a very different understanding of people to a belief in biblical creation. Now, according to the Bible, all of humanity, everyone on the earth, is descended from one man. Adam. In his address to the Athenians, the Apostle Paul said this, from one man God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. The Bible tells us that we also all came from one woman too. In Genesis chapter 3 we read that Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And in this slide, we can see what is essentially the biblical account of early human history. God made Adam and Eve, who had a number of sons and daughters. And from these, the original human population grew up. Then, around 1,600 years after creation, due to all the sin and violence in the world, God judged humanity through a great flood a global flood, which only Noah and his family survived. Okay, so according to the Bible, all people on the earth today are descended from the three sons of Noah and their wives. Then, following mankind's rebellion against Babel, God confused their languages and scattered them over the face of the earth which is why we now have different people groups in different parts of the world speaking fundamentally different languages. The Bible, then, teaches that we are one human family. There aren't many different human races. There's just one human race, the people descended from Adam. So in biblical thinking, there's no place for racism. How can there be if there's only one 
human race. And it is this biblical account of creation and early human history that surely provides the final answer to the problem of racism. Now, in the evolutionary view, people, of course, are little more than glorified apes. Over the last six million years or so, we're told, ape-like creatures uh, evolved into people. I don't believe it for a moment. I think it's absurd, but that's what they say. Now, Charles Darwin was, in many ways, a Victorian gentleman. He abhorred slavery and actually gave regularly to missionary causes. But his evolutionary beliefs led to him having a dark side. And he was explicitly racist. Darwin believed that people throughout the world are different because they evolved separately from apes, or ape-like creatures that lived uh, lived millions of years ago. The Australoids of Australia the Negroids of Africa, the Mongoloids of Asia, and the Caucasoids of Europe all evolved separately, he believed. Darwin also believed that some of these different human races, as he saw them, had evolved more than others. And although he didn't advocate the extermination of dark-skinned peoples, he did predict, based on his theory that the superior, more evolved white races would replace, as he saw them, would replace the inferior, less evolved black races, as he saw them. He wrote in his book, The Descent of Man, that the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. Now, I dare say it grieves you that anybody could have said such things. But he did say them, and many people accepted his argument. The Harvard University historian of science, Professor Stephen Jay Gould, wrote this. Biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1850, but they increased by orders of magnitude following acceptance of evolutionary theory. On the more more benign side, although still shocking, this led to bizarre activities, such as an African being put on display at a zoo as an example of a man that was partly evolved, halfway between an ape uh, and and a human. The man was Otebenga, and he was brought from the Belgian Congo and put on display at St. Louis, Missouri, in 1906. On the more sinister side, it led to Australian Aboriginals being shot to provide specimens for museums. That is, specimens of supposedly partly evolved humans. The theory of evolution was also accepted by some in the church with equally shocking consequences. For example, the Reverend Charles Kingsley, who was a great supporter of Darwin and his theory, wrote this. The black people of Australia, exactly the same race as the African Negro, cannot take in the gospel. All attempts to bring them to a knowledge of the true God have as yet failed utterly. 
poor brutes in human shape. They must perish off the face of the earth like brute beasts. Well, the Reverend Kingsley would have done better to acquire his understanding of people uh, from the Bible rather than from Charles Darwin. Ernst Haeckel was a professor of zoology at the University of Jena in Germany, and he was one of Darwin's greatest supporters in Europe. And in his zeal to promote Darwinism, Haeckel even forged drawings of embryos in order to try and persuade people of the truth of evolution. Now, Haeckel taught that humans pass through the different stages of evolution during their embryonic development, when they're in their mother's womb. You see, according to Darwin's theory, we all came from fish. So if we traced our family tree back far enough, we'd come to fish. And uh, you can see here how Haeckel's drawings of embryos um, here, the fish, salamanders, chickens, and humans, all look very similar at this stage of development. Okay? He called this his theory of embryonic recapitulation, on the, uh, based on the idea that our embryonic development, our growth in the womb, retraces or recapitulates our evolutionary development. And you know, historically... Haeckel's theory of embryonic recapitulation has been used to justify abortion. You see, people were told that aborting a fish at an early stage, uh, sorry, aborting a fetus at an early stage was no different to aborting a fish. Many people were told that based on Haeckel's theory of embryonic recapitulation. And they went ahead and had the termination in reality, you know, embryos look like this. This is a, a fish embryo, uh, this is a salamander, this is a chicken, uh, and this is a human. And, uh, you know, modern, there are modern uh, professors of embryology who, are, you know, will be quite uh, open and honest about Haeckel's embryos, uh, and that was that they were deliberate forgeries. Uh, Haeckel was a brilliant technical artist. If you Google Ernst Haeckel, you can see... The, the astonishing quality of his work. There's absolutely no way uh, these embryo drawings of his uh, were accidents. In one of his books, Professor Haeckel wrote this. If one must draw a sharp boundary between the higher mammals, it has to be drawn between the most highly developed and civilized man on the one hand and the rudest savage on the other. And the latter have to be classed with the animals. This is what the theory of evolution led to, make no mistake. He went on to say, thus, for example, a great English traveller lived for a considerable time on the west coast of Africa. And he says, I consider the Negro to be a lower species of man and cannot make up my mind to look upon him as a man and a brother. For the gorilla would then also have to be admitted into the family. Believe you me, um, I find it hard to uh, read these things out. It's not easy. I don't find it easy to stand here and tell you about these things. And you know, this was, Haeckel was one of Germany's top 19th century intellectuals. His uh, ignorance 
beggar's belief. Friedrich Ratzel was another prominent German Darwinist, and he developed the theory of uh, Lebensraum, which is German for living space. Just as more successful animals displace less successful animals, he taught, it was natural in the struggle for space and the struggle for life for stronger human races to displace, to drive out weaker human races. Both Heckel and Ratzel were very influential in promoting what's called social Darwinism. The idea that survival of the fittest not only applies to animals in the jungle, but also to people and nations. Even the German emperor, Kaiser Wilhelm II, had been persuaded of this view. And writing of the rise of Japan following their military victories over China in 1895, he wrote this. I foresee in the future a fight for life and death between the white and the yellow for their sheer existence. That's a race war, that is. This doctrine of Lebensraum, or living space, was sometimes applied very rigorously in the German colonies, the the countries that Germany conquered. And perhaps nowhere more so than in German West Africa. And in the early part of the 20th century, German soldiers killed the, um, slaughtered the, these indigenous African peoples um, because they were considered to be inferiors. Speaking of these people, the American president, Woodrow Wilson, remarked that Germany's imperial interest had not been the development of these African people, but their extermination. Um, And, you know, many of the senior soldiers and racial scientists who were at the forefront of German policy in Africa went on to play leading roles in the rise of the Nazi party. The surgeon and anthropologist Professor Arthur Keith echoed the understanding of many when he wrote of Adolf Hitler. The German Fuhrer, as I've consistently maintained, is an evolutionist. He has consciously sought to make the practice of Germany conform to the theory of evolution. Hitler himself declared, higher race subjects to itself a lower race, a right that we see in nature. Well, you might be saying to yourself, okay, but surely this is just uh, a matter of history, just a part of history. But you know, evolutionary racism is alive and well today. The co-discoverer of DNA, James Watson, this is uh, the man here, James Watson, one of the world's top scientists, one of the people who discovered the structure of DNA, and he wrote this. There is no firm reason to anticipate that the intellectual capacities of people geographically separated in their evolution should should prove to have evolved identically. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful, but basically what he's saying is that there's no reason to believe scientifically that people in other countries uh, should have evolved the same amount of intelligence as people in the West. That's what he's saying. Well, as I've already argued, the answer to all this 
is the biblical account of creation. Because if we're all descended from Adam, as the Bible teaches, then there's no basis for racism. Because there's only one human race. And we are, in fact, all part of just one human family. And you know, recent research in the science of genetics has confirmed this. Don't let anyone tell you that science and the Bible are in conflict because it's simply not the case. Now, the part of our DNA known as the Y chromosome is passed from father to son. Okay? Women don't have a Y chromosome. And secular geneticists, that's geneticists, scientists who study genes and so on, secular geneticists who would make no profession of Christian faith, secular geneticists have gone all around the world sampling men's Y chromosomes. And they've come to the conclusion that the whole of humanity is descended from one man. I kid you not. They've given them the name Y-chromosomal Adam. Not because they believe in Adam and Eve, of course, but it does seem a rather good name, doesn't it, if you're a biblical creationist? Now, the part of our DNA known as mitochondrial DNA is inherited just from the mother. Okay? So men and women have mitochondrial DNA, but you just get it from your mum. And secular geneticists, that's geneticists who would make, make no profession of Christian faith, secular geneticists have gone all around the world sampling people's mitochondrial DNA. And they've come to the conclusion that the whole of humanity is descended from one woman. They've given them the name mitochondrial Eve. Not because they believe in Adam and Eve, of course, but it does seem a rather good name, doesn't it? if you're a biblical creationist. Now, all this fits the biblical account of creation rather well. Indeed, it was a scientifically testable prediction of the biblical account of creation. But it was never a prediction of evolutionary theory. And evolutionists have to jump through hoops in order to accommodate these facts into their theory. Now, how many people here have been told that they share 99% of their DNA with chimpanzees? How many people have been told that? Oh, surely. Yeah, yes, a number of you, that's right. Well, did you know that you... uh, um, And, and of course, evolutionists say that, that that proves you know, that, that um, we're related to, to chimpanzees and that we, we evolved from apes, they say. But did you know that we share 50% of our DNA with bananas? And let's face it, we're not half banana. Now, it's funny, it's very funny, but there's a serious side. Because you see... If sharing 99% of our DNA with chimpanzees doesn't make us 99... Sorry, if sharing 50% of our DNA with bananas doesn't make us 50% banana, then sharing 99% of our DNA with chimpanzees wouldn't make us 99% chimp. 
And this 99% figure is a very old one anyway. Um, a much more realistic figure, which you'll see in, in um, you know, secular non-Christian journals, is now closer to 95%. Well, where did all the so-called human races come from? I mean, if all of humanity is descended from one man, where did the different people groups come from? And why do we get dark-skinned people and light-skinned people? Well, this is an article from our Creation magazine, and it features these two lovely twin girls, one with blue eyes and light skin, and the other with brown eyes and brown skin. And they're twins. And here's mum and dad, and here they are together as a family. Mum and dad are two medium brown-skinned people. Perhaps Adam and Eve had their skin colour. Personally, I think it's very likely. Here they are a few years on. Now, can you see the girl on the left? She's not just light-skinned, but to me, she's got a more European look. Is that my imagination, or would you agree with me? Yeah, yeah? Thank you very much. Uh, great supporter down here. Yes. You, you can come again. Okay, okay, okay. And the one on the right, I mean, she's not just dark-skinned, is she? She's got an African look about her. All come from two people. In another issue of our creation magazine, we feature two lifelong friends, Bill Culbra and George Snow Wilson, as he was called. And Bill and George became friends when they served together in the Australian army. Years later, when Bill was suffering from kidney failure, George was able to give him one of his kidneys. Now, in order for kidney transplants to be successful, especially uh, when they were transplanted uh, at the time of these two, there has to be a close match between the donor's and the recipient's tissues. Okay? Why then, if the evolutionary lines of Bill and George separated many thousands of years ago, as evolutionists tell us, was there such a close match between Bill's and George's tissues? And you know, this is no isolated in, um, example as made clear in this article in Discover magazine, they wrote, the genetic unity of all people on the planet means, for instance, that white Americans can sometimes be better tissue matches for black Americans than our other black Americans. White Americans can sometimes be better tissue matches for black Americans than other black Americans, and, of course, vice versa. This is so significant. This means that in some ways I am probably more like some dark-skinned people than I am some light-skinned people. So, you see, there aren't different human races. There's just one human race, 
the people descended from Adam, as the Bible teaches. Um, right, 32 minutes. I've got eight left, haven't I? What about these claims of fossilized ape men? You know, creatures that they've found that are supposedly part way between apes and people. Well, here's a, a typical uh, ape man. Uh, this was on display at a museum in uh, St. Louis in the United States. And what you've basically got here is a human body with an ape's head. And it's supposedly a reconstruction of a fossil with a very fancy name, Australopithecus afarensis. Sometimes they refer to it as Lucy. But you know, how accurate is it? Is it really an accurate depiction? Well, on the right there, you can see um, the, uh, uh, um, basically a skeleton um, and a much more realistic depiction of this creature by Harvard University. And you'll note the differences. Can you see how this creature here, it's got very human-like hands, but the hands of Australopithecus afarensis were, in fact, m grossly ape-like, just right for um, holding on to tree branches. Can you see how slender the torso is? You know, people, humans have a slender torso. Not me anymore, because I've got too much of this, but humans have a very slender torso. It's because they have a barrel-shaped ribcage. But the fossil, in fact, had a funnel-shaped ribcage. That's what you get on apes. That's why they have these pot bellies. Um, the finger bones of Australia... Oh, yes. Um, this creature here, it's shown walking upright, isn't it? Just like human beings. But you know, CT scans have shown that the organ of balance in the, in the skull was orientated for a knuckle-walking posture. That's what these apes do. They, they knuckle-walk. And the organ of balance was orientated for a knuckle-walking posture. They also found bones in the wrists of this, this, this fossil uh, for locking the wrists, just as knuckle-walkers have. Um, there's all sorts of question marks about this. Um, you know, I was listening to a, um, a lecture by um, a professor of anatomy uh, on this fossil. And he'd been to this museum and seen this reconstruction. He'd gone away and he'd read the technical papers on the fossils. And he realized that the creature, the, the fossil creature, just could not have looked like this. It was very clear to him, as an anatomist, that it, it, wasn't, you know, it didn't look like that. And he wrote to the museum, and they wrote back, and they accepted that he had a point. Well, he had made a few points, very good ones. But they said they were just trying to give an impression. They admitted it wasn't accurate. So what was their explanation? Well, we were just trying to give an impression. What were they trying to give an impression of? Evolution. Now, I ask you this. If you wanted people to believe in evolution, and there were lots of very convincing ape men out there, what would you put on display? You'd put on display one of the convincing ape men, wouldn't you? You wouldn't make something up. Why did they make something up? Because they haven't got the real thing. Now, according to Professor Richard Dawkins, this is what evolution tells us about ourselves. Darwin's theory of evolution, he says, shows that we are no more than survival mechanisms. 
Robot vehicles blindly programmed to preserve the selfish molecules known as genes. According to Dawkins, evolution shows that we are no more than biochemical robots. We just do what the chemical reactions in our bodies prompt us to do. According to Dawkins, all our thoughts, feelings and choices are not driven by a mind or a soul, but simply by biochemistry going on inside us. Professor Anthony Cashmore of the University of Pennsylvania would agree with him. According to Cashmore, Darwin's theory shows that not only do we have no more free will than a fly or a bacterium, in actuality, we have no more free will than a bowl of sugar. And he means it. Can you imagine what it would be like if people really believed this? Can you imagine a society where people behave as if this were true? A society where people act as if they're not responsible for what they do, which is really what this man is saying. And this is being taught to our youngsters in the universities as science. Personally, I think I'd struggle to think of a more dangerous doctrine with which to raise the up-and-coming generation. You know, the creation-evolution debate, what we believe about our origins, is no side issue. The religious scholar Professor Houston Smith wrote this. Martin Lings is probably right in saying that more cases of loss of religion are to be traced to the theory of evolution than to anything else. Mark Carhill is an evangelist who has spent many years sharing Christ with students across the United States. And he said this, The number one answer I get for there not being a God is evolution. And if you're thinking, oh, well, that's just America, what about Andy Banton, who's General Secretary of the Open Air Mission here in the UK? He said, The number one objection to the Christian message that we hear over and over is the theory of evolution. The creation-evolution debate is no side issue. But the good news is that there's absolutely no reason for our youngsters to lose their confidence in the Bible. Over the last 20 years or so, creation scientists have done an enormous amount of really good work. And more and more, we have the answers. More and more, we can demonstrate that the known facts of science fit the biblical account of creation and earth history far better than they fit the evolution story. And if you'd like to um, know more, you can sign up to Creation magazine. That uh, comes out quarterly. Uh, it's in full colour. Lots and lots of really good information about how science supports a belief in creation and a belief in the Bible. Some articles from Creation magazine... Um, we've got some freebies. But only if you sign up. If you sign up today, you can take away this free timeline of world history, uh, according to the Bible. You can take away a free back issue of the magazine. This free DVD about why creation matters, it's so important. It's a free booklet 
all about uh, making sense of our world from a, a biblical point of view. And last but not least, you also get this free polythene bag. Right, okay, thank you. Okay, you can get it digitally too. Read it on your smartphone or whatever you've got. Um, right, forms at the back if you want Creation Magazine. Don't forget the website, that's free. You can download our free app, creation.mobi. If you're a teenager, you like stories, fiction, Christian fiction, old school secrets. Really fascinating story. That'll keep you up all night. Um, and uh, you can, you'll get also lots of interesting facts about creation and science. Okay, Creation Answers book. I think probably more than any other book, this one makes clear that Christians, Bible-believing Christians, people who believe in creation, have absolutely nothing to be afraid of from science. It answers all sorts of questions about science and the Bible. Okay, do we have time for questions? I think, Ooh. if you would like to, from the young people, I think if you're, uh, if you're an old person, sorry, excuse me saying young person, old person, you can stay around at the end and you've got the confidence to ask your own questions. If, if any young people, uh, I'm happy to take a couple of questions, but equally you can hang around and ask questions from Dom and Gavin afterwards if you prefer. Any burning questions you want to ask? Yeah, go on. We should believe in the Bibles. Does that mean dinosaurs never existed? Okay. Right. No, we, we are quite clear that dinosaurs existed. Um, in fact, the Bible describes creatures that seem uh, very dinosaur-like. Behemoth and Leviathan, they seem very dinosaur-like, so we certainly believe in dinosaurs. Um, we believe that the dinosaurs were the dragons. So you go all around the world and they will tell you about their dragon legends. And what's so remarkable is that the creatures they describe are so similar. You go to different parts of the world, speak to different people groups, different tribes even, and they will describe the same sorts of creatures. These reptilian creatures, very often with three claws. Many of these dragon legends talk about creatures with three claws just like the um, theropod dinosaurs that we dig up out of the rocks. Now, we haven't got much time, but I'm going to show you, I think, some pretty convincing evidence that people saw dinosaurs. What I'm, going to sh the most, what I'm about to show you, okay, I think the most reasonable um, explanation for is that people actually saw these creatures in the past. Okay? So, um, I'm going to be as quick as I can, because I know we're, we're running out of time. But there's, I, I would say that there is lots of evidence that people in the past saw dinosaurs. Um, and they called them dragons. Okay? So, I'm just going to... I'll give you the... Um, right, if you go to Carlisle Cathedral... Um, this is the... Uh, is it possible to get rid of these front lights? Just the front lights. Yeah, um, if you take away that blue rug there, under it you'll see a tomb. Bishop Bell, who was buried in the end of the 15th century. 
And on his tomb are all sorts of brass engravings, including these. What are they? They're seropods, aren't they? I mean, this one's got spikes on its tail, just like some seropods did. Um, Stenosaurus had spikes on its tail, but maybe that was uh, Volcanodon. Uh, there are many... Um, let me show you some as quick as I can. Um, this is an ancient Chinese carving from about 2000 BC. Next to it there you can see a reconstruction of Centrosaurus from the fossil record. That's the skull. This is another ancient Chinese carving from around the same period. Next to it there you can see a reconstruction of Protoceratops, again, from the fossil record. That's the fossil. How did these creatures depict... How, how did these people depict these creatures so accurately if they had no records of them, if humans never saw them. I've got a whole talk on this. and uh, uh, um, Dinosaurs. If you come across dinosaur soft tissue, you know, um, a lot of... They're discovering now that more and more dinosaurs, you know, they're not completely fossilized. And there's, um, you can find blood cells in them, blood vessels, proteins, soft, stretchy tissues... This indicates that these dinosaurs didn't die out millions of years ago, but just thousands of years ago. I maintain that the, um, the facts fit a biblical view of dinosaurs, that they died out only um, in the last what, hundreds or thousands of years uh, rather than millions of years ago. And the facts fit that view um, very, very well.